Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Fishing Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Florida Fishing Products, Turtle Box Audio, Costa Sunglasses, and Orvis Fly Fishing. Captain Chris Schultz has overcome a lot. After a motorcycle accident that left him with one leg, Chris had to work his way back into guiding. Rather than getting down, Chris used it as an opportunity to grow as a captain and person. In this podcast, Chris shares his story, as well as his ongoing love for fishing and waterfowl, from cobia to tarpon to the elusive clapper rail. In this conversation, Chris shares the insights and stories that he's gathered along the way. We hope you enjoy our time together. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And then it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might, definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. All right. Well, hey, Chris, thanks so much for hanging out. It's been a good night here in St. Augustine and grateful for you to stop by. I feel like we got 20 to 30 people at this uh, Airbnb. We already got hootie hood with the police coming <laughs> and uh, we're having a good time here getting ready for Marsh Fest. And um, I really appreciate you coming in and sharing a little bit about your story and what you do. I know you love cobia, tarpon, redfish, ducks, dogs. So I'm excited just to dive into that. Those are all things that make me happy. Um, it's definitely not a party till the police show up, so we're doing it right here in St. Augustine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we bribed them with uh, cheap red wine and dark chocolate <laughs> and, and saltwater taffy. Yeah. So I think we're good. But um, yeah, tell us about your business. What all do you do, and uh, how do you incorporate the bay boat and your, your shallow water boat in it as well? Well, with our fishery, we have a great nearshore fishery where the bay boat really shines. You know, it lets me stretch out to 30 miles offshore when I want or run the beach 50 miles looking for tarpon in the summer 60 miles 70 miles seven days looking for cobia in the spring so like mm. really gives you that stretch I came I had a panga originally when I first started guiding and those are great little skiffs yeah. but they get tight they're pretty narrow <laughs> yeah. everyone's getting wet <laughs> and uh 60 mile run in a panga your your back feels that <laughs> what, what do you have now I've got a sea fox uh 240 viper okay um so a lot of bow flare, big wide bay boat, 24 foot. I've got a huge casting platform on the bow. So my anglers are standing above T-top level. You know, they've got a great view from up there. They can see down through the pogey pods and watch the tarpon just kind of laid up, which is unique because our, our waters are so dark here. It's very rare you're going to see a tarpon from mm -hmm. a skiff here. You know, it's not like the Keys where you can see strings of fish moving down the beach. We've got a ton of tarpon but it's dirty water. So you're only seeing them when they're feeding or when they're rolling mm -hmm. and you know, rolling's early morning. 
feeding here though is unique we can have feeding tarpon all day long mm-hmm. if they're in the right mood just feeding on bait pods from sunrise to sunset are you predominantly doing live bait or are you doing artificials fly uh all of the above mostly live bait early in the morning we start out with artificial or fly and then once that sun gets up we're usually transitioning to live bait um you can get the fly eat middle of the day sometimes when the fish are laid up in the bait pods but it's hard it's it's a thousand cast fish it's not yeah yeah do you guys use pogey mullet pogies yeah okay so right now we're on mullet there's mullet on the beach right now can't get out there because of the wind but this time of year hmm. we do have mullet on the beach all summer though those fish are feeding on pogies and that's the biggest determination of how our season's going to be is just what the bait situation's like some years we'll get bait all year round some years the baits really hit or miss how did you get into the bay boat side of things? Was that something you grew up doing or was that something that you kind of evolved from a skiff to bay boat? What was that progression like? I made that skiff to bay boat transition. I had a, uh, a dolphin backcountry was my first real skiff. Absolutely loved it. It was a great little boat. Um, learned how to fish on that boat. But the problem with that boat is, you know, if you get two clients, you full load, you're running offshore on the beach. It's really mm-hmm. not the right boat for the beach here. So that kind of pushed me towards the panga, a little bit more bow. I started doing more of the near shore stuff once I got the panga, and that pushed me farther into the actual, you know, moving into a full-size bay boat. Did you have any interesting history behind the panga? Was it down in Central America or anything fun like that? Or No, it was one of the panga marine boats um, made in southwest Florida. A local Coast Guard uh, member bought it had it rigged out absolutely perfect and had like 200 hours on it and i was looking at him new and that boat came up used and it was just a no-brainer it was right in the backyard and it was already rigged had all the electronics he had like a great transducer in it you know it had offshore boat level electronics and a 19 foot skiff so that was a easy decision when that thing came on the market (laughs) yeah so for you in the summertime you're focusing predominantly on tarpon what percentage of your focus goes towards that and then what else do you do during the summer um in the past i did more of a mix kind of the traditional charter captain around here is running a lot of kingfish trips in the summer um this summer was the first year i didn't run a single one i was just doing tarpon and that's definitely the direction i want to go kind of build that clientele what what to you kind of drew you into that why out of all the because one of the things i like about jacksonville you guys can get deep really fast you guys have the saint augustine jacksonville area um what what drew you into tarpon in particular you know really is that ultimate game fish um the first big tarpon i caught i was fishing on a kayak that i'd borrowed from someone throwing a topwater plug around the volano rocks at sunrise one morning wow and just this 150 plus pound fish comes skying out of the water and did you, you landed him on a top water block, i or? didn't land him oh, okay. uh, i got a very brief sleigh ride <laughs> yeah i got you, know? you i was like <laughs> yeah i haven't met too many people that have landed a uh tarpon on a top water no i love throwing top water at them but it's not mm-hmm. the right bait if you want to actually land a fish mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want you to see, treble hooks see on a it? fun time that one did have treble hooks yeah. on it now i'm more refined i'll throw the nomad with single hooks but yeah you're still not landing many of those fish <laughs> yeah i think the big issue is the weight of you know the top water yeah. as it jumps it's gonna yeah he's shaking his head yeah. just you know 
When you sh- shift over to artificial, what does that look like for you? What type of baits are you using? What's your approach? How does that differ from the live bait? So it depends on the time of the month and kind of what the bait that we're seeing. Those big mm-hmm. uh, live target shrimps work really well if you got a shrimp flush coming out of the river. And that's the easiest thing to get a client to catch one on. All they got to do is throw it out or drifting with the current. Mm-hmm. Just reel if once it starts screaming. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty simple. <laughs> do you have a circle the, hook on that thing? <laughs> it's the it's the factory hook on yeah. it, but a lot of times when you're drifting, that you know it's like a two knot current mid tide. That fish hits. I got the drag set pretty tight. You don't have to set the hook. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's gonna hook itself. Do you use a lot of hoagies or? I do. I like the hoagies. I like the NLBNs. That eight inch NLBN is a great bait. They it's a one fish bait. You're gonna get one tarpon on it <laughs> you know you've <laughs> got to be willing to pay 10 bucks for that bite but yeah i'd pay 10 bucks for a tarpon 100 oh, you said i'll do it give all me summer. 10 bucks and <laughs> yeah I'll, we'll hook a tarpon tomorrow I'll, yeah i'll give you 10 bucks yeah that, i might give you 15 who knows <laughs> some days I they're undercharging i'd pay more than that <laughs> if they're listening to this they need to up their uh they need to up, to, up their their cost um so tell me a little bit about the cobia because i know you like cobia too what does that look like for you and and what you do with your business so our cobia fishery We've got a year-round cobia fishery here. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to go chase them, you know, to the ledges that they're staged on at whatever point the water temp's at. But in the spring, we can sight fish them off manta rays, and that's that's what I absolutely love doing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to beat rolling up on a 12-foot manta ray and seeing just brown bombers cruising on its back. It's that gets your blood pumping. Now, and, when you do that, are you on the motor, trolling motor? Or we're on the drifting? main motor almost all okay. the time. And then what are you throwing at them? Jigs mostly, two ounce bucktails. I'm okay. old school. I like a bucktail jig. I, not ten dollars. Not ten dollars. <laughs> Seven dollars. <laughs> yeah. And lasts a lot longer. Yeah, you can catch. It, well, that depends on the accuracy of the casting. <laughs> you hooked a manta ray. <laughs> a lot of people hook the manta rays. <laughs> yeah, and, that's a hard one to land. Yeah, you do your best to talk clients through it, and there's little tricks like. Um, one of the owner of our local tackle shop who's been fishing for those fish since the 80s told me fish mono with your clients. I was like, well, you know when fish is mono anymore. What do you mean? He's like, well, the mono is going to roll off the roll off the manta ray's wings when your client makes a terrible cast. You just have them open the bale, and they're never going to break off. Hmm. If you put a jig over a, a manta ray's back with braid on it, and that braid touches anywhere along its wing, it's going to sling the jig straight into it. It just grabs or it pops from the tension, one of the two. Hmm. So, what are some other little tips like that that you try to help ensure success on cobia with your clients? Throw it near side. There's no point in throwing it over the ray. A lot of people try and throw it past the ray and rip it over it. Mm-hmm. If you can get it ten feet in front of the ray and on your side of it, the fish will come off and eat it. A lot of the times. What's like if I were to say I saw a good amount on a ray? What would that number be in your head? Nowadays, four. Okay. You know five ten years ago ten we, so you're seeing a pretty significant decrease we are um the covid run was spectacular just because there's no pressure i mean it was like it's like you got a time machine and got to go cobia fishing in the 80s it was pretty incredible um since then it's been pretty tough um it could change we just changed our regs Florida had pretty loose cobia regs in the Atlantic for the last six years compared to the rest of the Atlantic states. And we know through tagging that a lot of these fish are moving up to the Chesapeake to spawn. Mm -hmm. 
we do have some local spawning that occurs here, but there is a definite, definite migratory population that moves from the Cape all the way through the Chesapeake. Mm -hmm. And so cobia grow fast. You know, we, I'm an optimist for the future of our cobia fishery. What do you feel like is key for success? Is it tightening regulations? Is it pressure? Is it trying to, is it a bait issue? What, what are, what are some of the things that you think really can make the big difference in the long run? I think protecting the forage is a big issue that um, our resource managers need to look at. The fact that you have commercial fishing for pogies and mullet all summer long throughout most of the East Coast isn't good for the game fish species that mm -hmm. rely on those as forage. I mean, it's just... And we seem to see less bait than we used to. Mm -hmm. That's just it's a trend... And there's more people than there ever has been. And that none of those trends seem like they're changing. But So me and you are out. We pull up on a, on a ray. And you're under motor. I'm casting on the near side. Let's just say there's five. It's a good situation. In general, how long are you on that ray? And how many could we, could we catch three out of the five? Is that realistic or is it usually one? Let's go to a different one. How does that kind of work out for you usually? If there's multiple fish, you've got a much better shot than if there's a single fish. They get competitive with each other. Mm -hmm. um, you see three fish catching two is really common. You see five fish catching three or four, not uncommon at all. Mm -hmm. That kind of depends on how many people you have ready that can make an accurate cast when those fish are there. How, how close are you getting to them generally? Um, it kind of depends on where the rays are at. If you're fishing in an area where there's not a lot of pressure mm -hmm. and you know there's, they haven't seen a lot of pressure, you can get right on top of them. I mean, you can hook cobia right under the bow. But if it's right in the backyard, right in Jack's Beach, and there's 200 boats out, everybody's doing it, <laughs> these rays are getting burned all day, a long cast is key. Yeah. You might not be able to get within 100 feet. You okay. know, you're you're making as far of a cast as you can with an eight foot rod, throwing a two two ounce jig. How do you like the prep cobia if you kill one? How do, how do you like to eat it? Blackened, grilled. There you go. Can't go wrong. Any secrets there? Certain seasoning, certain methods. Um, I would say save the ribs, especially on a big fish. There's a lot of meat on a cobia that you lose if you just fillet that fish. I mm -hmm. mean, you can kind of gut them and break them down, almost like a deer, where you're you're getting pretty much 100% except for the backbone. Um, the collars are great. Hamachi Kama, if you've got a turkey fryer or just a yeah. big big fryer, cut that collar in half and get that dark meat. I don't know if I've ever had cobia rib. Um, is that Do you just grill that the same? You still blacken that, or do you do something different? Yeah, grill it or blacken it. Um, it's great meat for tacos. Grill the whole piece, and then you pull. The rib bones are giant, so it's mm -hmm. easy to pull the bones out. Yep. Little cobia tacos. Yep. What's um that's a captain's cut, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the captain's cut, yeah. Captain's cut tacos. Yep. When you start to switch over into the redfish, what what year? What time of the year do you like to do redfish? What's the style you like to do here? Kind of how does that play into to your business? So we're really lucky. Redfish are year round here. I mean, there's not a day of the year you can't catch a redfish in North Florida. Low tide, you can sight fish almost every day, even if the water's dirty. You can still pull around and look for pushing fish, backing fish, fish working oyster bars. Um, for the real big bull reds, which a lot of Jacksonville's kind of known for, we get a lot of people that come just mm -hmm. to target bull reds. That's this time of year. That's a fall fishery. Mm -hmm. um, 
there are resident fish in the river. You can mess with them almost year round, mm. but really the 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 spawn is in the fall. And so you get a lot of fish that move from offshore off the near shore wrecks that come into the river and you know, you can have a ten fish day right now and the smallest fish is thirty five inches. Now how how are you targeting those? You fish in deep water with live bait predominantly. Mm-hmm. Um, you can jig for them, especially at night. Uh, kind of like you would fish for snook down south at night with bucktails. Mm-hmm. That's pretty productive. They'll get up on the dock lights at night in certain places, deep dock lights. Wow. You know, if you got a long dock that's 20 foot off the end of that dock, you can see some big fish come up in that light if you're patient enough I would to wait. love to see a over 30-inch, 35-inch <laughs> redfish sitting on a dock light. Do they yeah. behave like snook? Are they just kind of sitting there, or are They'll they in and They'll sit there and just facing the current. Um, mm. you, you will see them moving in and out sometimes, but you'll see them just sit. Just are you throwing floating. small flies at the dock lights, or are you doing are you, pretty big bait fish patterns? Okay. Um, like EP bait fish is going to get crushed, you know. Your normal tarpon fly works good for yeah. a big red in a dock light. And then for the trout in the dock lights, you know, something small, a little clouser. Is that something that you do with a lot of clients or is that more of just you? I do that with friends? mostly with friends. Yeah. Um, I have a few fly clients that like to fish at night in the summer just because it's so hot. Mm-hmm. It's freaking miserable. You know, you can catch so many trout in the summer on the dock lights. It's a lot of fun. You can bring mm-hmm. a six weight out and just catch fish so your arms hurt. <laughs> Do you do a lot of flood tide stuff too? That's obviously what we're doing down here around Marsh Fest. Is that are you pretty into the flood tide stuff, or do you like to kind of do a little bit more of the bowls, dock lights stuff that we've been talking about? I love the flood tides. Um, I lost my leg right after I started guiding, mm-hmm. so that took me out of polling for a few years. Uh, last year I started polling again, and then this year I've been fishing the floods as much as I can. So um, you mentioned you lost your leg. Obviously, we're going to get into that. Give us your Give us your kind of your entry into guiding. And I knew you lost it around the time that you started guiding and then kind of the story behind that. Because are you the only one-legged captain? <laughs> there's, uh, I think I'm the only one in Jacksonville, at least. But there, there, <laughs> there's a woman in Georgia and, uh, that, wow. <laughs> who she, she lost her leg uh, a few years before I lost mine. And you have a conference. Yeah. <laughs> get everybody get together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, how'd you get into guiding? How'd you lose your leg? I, I always had a passion for fishing and mm-hmm. you know, I was like the kid that was riding his bike to go catch bass in the pond. And, you know, just from a very young age, always loved to fish, always loved to surf too. And spent, um, you know, most of my time in college and just after it, just chasing waves wherever I could, but fishing as much as I could while I was traveling, kind of realized that I never wanted to work in an office. Just didn't want that life. Mm-hmm. Um, Knew a few guides, had some friends that guided, had a GNU at the time and a dream, and just started, you know, racking up those hours studying for the captain's license. Is this course. during college or is this during? Yeah, this was, uh, this would have been during grad school. So I got, okay. um, did my undergrad at UF and then moved back to Jacksonville, did grad school at UNF. What did you, uh, study? Started out in anthropology. Okay. And uh, clear, clear jump there. Yeah, found found a whole lot of unemployment waiting for me <laughs> with that degree. I like, graduated right in the '06, uh, you know, market the, crash. The like, peak yeah. of anthropology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't wasn't a great time to be in uh, the, the social sciences. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my one job offer was to go to Denver, and so I flew out for the job offer to interview. 
and it was in December and it was, you know, six degrees sleeting <laughs> and I didn't have any time to go to the mountains. And I was like, yeah, this is not for me. What was uh, the job going to be? It was going to be digitizing, uh, the UC Denver's anthropology records and okay. teaching, uh, teaching undergrad anthropology courses is, there. Is that <laughs> what I think? Like just sitting there scanning stuff yeah, in? Yeah, just boring. <laughs> yeah. Just about as boring as you could get. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a great grasp on what anthropology is, but I'd like to think if I was studying anthropology, it would be a little bit more like Indiana Jones type stuff and a little bit less like scanning that was definitely the hope you know (laughs) (laughs) i don't remember indiana jones scanning papers yeah i thought anthropology might give me something i could go do in central or latin america and surf while doing it and Hmm. it didn't exactly didn't exactly work out that way yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) snowboard so i turned that down came back to florida you know just got back on the water pretty much immediately and just always kind of knew that I wanted to be a guide, but Mm -hmm. never really was thinking that could be a career Mm -hmm. and decided to make the leap and just try it. Did you have to work a side job while you started or did you have enough money saved up or how did that work out for you? Yeah, I worked some odd jobs and, um, worked for a consulting company doing, you know, traveling, but still being flexible enough where mm-hmm. I was a 1099 vendor so I could turn down projects if I was getting booked or, you know, try to maintain some degree of flexibility so that I could take a client mm-hmm. on those days that I did get one, you know, which at the beginning, you're just trying to get anything you can get yeah. going. And, uh, I was lucky enough to be kind of in the Jacksonville fly scene at the time. Uh, black fly was a great shop here. Uh, Andrew Mizell, James Ferguson was still there at the time. Mm-hmm. And those guys kind of were getting out of guiding at that time and started throwing me some of their charters. And so when I first started, probably 40 to 60% of my trips were fly trips from the start. And that kind of established a repeat clientele, kind of the serious anglers, the guys that liked what I did, sight fishing, you know, not just going out and catching mm-hmm. whatever, you know, tugs on the hook. You know, you're... <laughs> You're kind of fishing the way you'd want to fish with your friends, which which really got me even more hooked on guiding. And you started in a canoe? You started, were guiding in a canoe, or did you just get your hours in a canoe? I started getting hours in a canoe. I bought the Panga right when I started okay. guiding. But I, I still I guided out of the LT25 for probably six to eight months while I had the Panga at the same time. Okay. Um, and so mostly fly fishing, and then you kind of evolved it into the bay boat, evolved into conventional tackle. Yep. So the... The fly fishing was good when it was good. So for the flood tides, you're good. You can book. When it's nice offshore, you get some trips, but you don't get that many offshore fly trips here. It's just not a destination. It's not known for it. Um, And so you had to try and do something else to fill fill a calendar. And in the panga, that was kingfish trips. So I started Mm -hmm. running kingfish trips in the panga and just building that way. What's the key? I haven't done much kingfish. I've I've probably caught half a dozen. Half a dozen. And, uh, so I don't know much about it. What's, what's that style of fishing look like for you? We live chum and slow troll. So you catch as many pogies as you can fit in your wells at the beginning of the day, head out to roughly like five to 10 miles offshore near shore structure, start live chumming. You'll Mm -hmm. see the fish blitzing through the, do the pogies have to stay alive? That's a critical well question. Ideally you're going to have two wells and one well, you're going to have your fishing bait and the other well, you're going to overload 
and those can die and okay. you know, you're going to chum out of the other well. Gotcha. So that's that's how most guys are doing around here. If you only have one well, I I wouldn't live chum. I'd rather have a half dozen or you know, three or four dozen good baits than 10 dozen dying baits. And and what's a good day of king fishing like? No, oh, just wise. real screaming. I mean, 15 fish, 20 fish. And what you, sizes are you guys pulling in? Off the wrecks, our average fish is probably 10 pounds. Okay. It's not uncommon to get a 20. And if you want to fish for bigger fish, you can fish the beach. You're going to get a lot less bites, but your average fish is going to jump up to that 25-pound range, and mm-hmm. you might see a 30. Um, wow. And, you know, big fish on our beach is 45. You know, pretty big kingfish. So how did how did you end up losing the leg? You said it happened when you first got into guiding. Yeah, I used to ride a Harley around. Um, love the bike. It's a great time. <laughs> it's not what you would be on when you get a head-on collision. Wow. <laughs> 10 out of 10, don't recommend. Um, wow. So I was, uh, it was after a tarpon trip in June. Just finished washing the boat. Just wanted to go for a ride before I went inside. Right around sunset. Was riding up towards the ramp from my house probably a couple miles from my house and uh going through a kind of an s curve car coming the other way just didn't turn at all rode straight through me um there was a car behind them so i couldn't exactly like turn in and there was they were already so far in my lane i couldn't go right i kind of had nowhere to go i just stayed upright and took it on the chin wow went over the car uh looked down and my leg was just trashed i didn't lose consciousness didn't take any head damage luckily i had a helmet on um saw my leg and was like new pretty immediately i was in a lot of trouble uh, yeah luckily wearing one of those paracord belts so i got that paracord belt off i was trying to like jury rig a tourniquet when someone who was fishing i was riding by a spot on the river where you can fish from the shore and someone who was fishing heard the impact and ran up and they called 911, helped me tourniquet the leg, and then, uh, you know, EMS got there eventually. <laughs> wow. It was the leg the main injury? Did you have other large injuries? or My whole left side, so, like, broke the femur, compound fracture, tibia, fibia, like, all the bones in that foot were broken, left hand was broken, um, left shoulder was dislocated, so my left side took it pretty good. And... You had to tourniquet it. I mean, how, when you, you say it was, uh, did it poke through the skin? It was. Oh, yeah. It was like the bottom of the leg was pretty much uh, yeah. disconnected, like degloved is what they call it. So oh, like, wow. Oh, yeah. Most of the flesh was gone from like the knee down. Mm-hmm. It was pretty gnarly. <laughs> and you didn't lose consciousness, getting the EMS, head to the hospital. Yeah. W- what's recovery look like for something like that? Um, so I actually had a choice. Um, they, they Frankensteined it back together right after the accident and so for about a week i had like an intact leg and an external fixator which is just a bunch of pins mm-hmm. and rods fixing it all together from your ankle all the way up to your pelvis and they knew from the damage to the foot that like i wasn't going to be able to walk again normally like best case scenario they're giving me was like a club foot so essentially like a fuel fully fused ankle and the the PT for that's really hard. The recovery's not great. Mm-hmm. Your long term outcomes aren't that great. Mm-hmm. Um, so just made the decision to just go ahead and amputate. Then, not waste the time. How fast did that decision have to be made? Probably about a week after the accident. Okay. Um, maybe slightly longer than that. I got transferred. So the first hospital they took me, 
uh, wasn't a level one trauma center. So mm-hmm. they moved me to a level one trauma center within a couple days. And then it might've been a week before that decision had to be made. Mm-hmm. But then after that, there was infection and just, you know, kind of just multiple issues. So it went from two surgeries to three surgeries mm-hmm. to five surgeries to, I think we're at 11 now. <laughs> and it's wow. just, uh, I'm luckily still below the knee. It was close. One more, it would have been at the knee, basically through the knee joint, mm-hmm. which is a lot longer recovery time. What's going through your head that first week? I mean, I would imagine that's an emotional an emotional experience to go through. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely in shock. I mean, it's you're kind of – the life that you knew is pretty much over, but you don't know it yet. There's no returning to, like, what normal was. Mm-hmm. Um, you got a new normal now. You just got to make the best of it. I think I was lucky. I mean, I had a pretty good attitude the whole time. I don't know why, but I never – there's not real resentment. There's no, you know, pissed off. Why did this happen to me? I was just like, look, what, how do I get back out? You know, mm-hmm. how do I get back to being on the boat? What, you know, it's pretty driven from the start to get back on the water. Mm-hmm. Tell me about getting back on the water. What, what did that process look like? What was that first day like? Um, so actually before I even got a prosthetic fixed, I was at the ledge 60 miles offshore on a sport fish boat on crutches, tuna fishing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, got the invite i was like that's a big enough boat i mean (laughs) i can sit on my couch at home or i can sit on the couch on the sport fish boat let's go yeah (laughs) (laughs) so that that was like a huge morale boost that was probably Mm -hmm. three months after the accident or so wow a four um and then it took a while i had pretty slow healing just because they kept revising the amputation site it took a long time to get a prosthetic um there's no real normal for this scenario, but most people that lose a leg are going to be in a prosthetic within like four months. Mm-hmm. For me, it was closer to eight and that was a tough eight months. I mean, that was, you know, sacked up on a lot of opiates, fucking stuck on the couch. Mm. It was a lot of PT every single day. You know, you're just doing, and you're not really seeing much progress. That's tough. Um, but then as soon as I got the prosthetic, it was like a new lease on life, you know? Wow. What was there a moment for you that you thought maybe you wouldn't get to be back on the water or were you pretty quickly optimistic about that? I definitely didn't know if I'd be able to guide again. I knew I'd be able to fish again. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if I'd be able to feel comfortable enough to run a boat again. Um, Mm -hmm. But luckily that didn't take long. I mean, I started with a mate my first summer back in the bay boat and it kind of went okay. And then that fall I got an offer to run an offshore boat where I'd have a mate, I'd show up and just run the boat, you know, and that, that worked out really well. I did that for a few months and that helped the transition, just getting comfortable being on the water, eight hours, 12 hours at a time again, all day, getting used to standing on the prosthetic offshore, getting that balance back, you know, feeling the sea legs again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What was the hardest thing to get into when you're talking about getting back, like obviously a big boat where, you know, you have high gunnels. I mean, but what were the big challenges for you as you kind of got back in the mix on things? Getting back on my bay boat was tough. I struggled a lot, almost sold it multiple times, came close. Um, you know, I really, part of it was probably in my head. Part of it was just a bay boat 
with a full front deck and a full casting deck on the back doesn't have much cockpit mm-hmm. and you're offshore and it's two to three in short period you know gets a little bouncy <laughs> yeah. were you falling in a lot or I, I never fell in i fell over a few times i <laughs> never <laughs> fell in <laughs> I fall in. Yeah. <laughs> I, knock on wood. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet, at least not on a charter. <laughs> but um, just that transition was a little slower than I would have hoped. You mm-hmm. know, I wanted to do it, but I really until this summer, I wasn't comfortable alone on my boat yet. Wow. Um, and then this summer was kind of, it's like I'm, I'm into that new normal now. I ran... I don't know how many tarpon trips on the bay boat this summer, but a lot and never, never felt unsafe or never felt like my client was having a worse experience because of my condition mm-hmm. or like they were, I, I was slowing down their day or holding them back from, you know, getting the tarpon. That's their goal. Cause I'm worried about screwing with my leg or how, how did that impact the way you see fishing? You talked about, when you got your prosthetic, it felt like a new lease on life. What are some of the ways that what you went through with that accident has changed how you do what you do on the water? I mean, it sounds cliche, but don't take any days for granted. You don't know when your last fishing trip's going to be. Might, might've been your last one, you know, get out there every day that you can and make the most of it. I mean, it's, it's kind of like one of those things where you don't realize how good you had it till you, till it's gone. Mm-hmm. And when you really think it might be gone, it really makes you think about things. And especially when you're stuck on the couch and you can't move anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you <get laughs> on a lot opioids. Time, yeah. You get a lot of time to think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of time in Viking land. Yeah. <laughs> some great, some great music being written. Oh yeah. Maybe not some good life decisions. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a, a friend who has a daughter who has limb differences and um, she's, she's young. She's, um, you know, still coming through surgeries and it's, a, it's amazing to watch her um, just continue to find ways to, to do things that people would never think she could do, Yeah, you know, and it's, and as a kid, she almost has a childlike pursuit of it to where she almost doesn't. I feel like she doesn't understand that a lot of people think she can't do something, you know, like in her mind, she just is like, I can do it. There's, yeah, I've never heard her say she can't do anything. And, um, I know there's just a lot of people who, whether they go through an injury or, or they have a limb difference or they have a medical diagnosis or whatever it may be, um, that feel like it's limiting to what they're able to enjoy in life. Do you find yourself, uh, spending more time trying to reach out and help people? Has it impacted the way that uh, you interact with people who have gone through similar accidents? How is that kind of fleshed out? It absolutely makes you more empathetic as a person. You know, you until you're disabled, you never see yourself as a disabled person. It kind of mm-hmm. It's hard to put yourself in their shoes. Uh, so I try and, you know, do the best that... I can with helping, you know, I've met probably five or six people who've had similar accidents, motorcycles, mm-hmm. uh, motor, it's, it's amazingly how common people lose a leg on a motorcycle. Once, once you join that club, it seems like there's yeah. new members all the time. It's like every few weeks I get a call, Hey, my cousin, my brother-in-law, my so-and-so, yeah, they're in the hospital. You might give them a call. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. cause during those first few weeks after, you know, you, 
you don't know what you're in for. It's, it's a scary time. So being able to talk to someone that's been through it definitely helps. And for me, there was a guy, uh, he was a St. John's County cop who lost his leg due to a infection from the hurricane water about two years before I lost mine above the knee. So he just had, he was working on duty. We had flooding in Palm Valley. He had a nick on his leg or something, got infected with Vibrio. Wow. Didn't notice it in time, you know. Uh, so he he talked to me probably three or four days after my accident. It was like, hey, look, I'm fishing again, you know. <laughs> so that connection, it's it's definitely helps when you're in that bad spot to know that, to just to talk to someone who's been there before mm-hmm. and realize that you're not alone. Mm. So I try and do that whenever I can, you know. I'm still pretty close to my orthopedic doctor. So if they get someone in that fishes kind of point in my direction, we text quite a bit, you know? <laughs> yeah. What an amazing opportunity to step in and give a little bit of encouragement to somebody in a time that seems so, I'm sure seems so hopeless or if nothing else, disorienting, like what is my yeah. life going to look like? What am what things am I still going to be able to have? And, mm-hmm. and it's amazing that you get the opportunity to do that with so many people. There's so many unknowns, you know, when you go through something like that, it's just having someone you can ask the question to that's been there before. Yeah. It helps. So topic change, hard, hard turn. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know you're also into duck hunting and uh, you have a Boykin and, um, I grew up doing a good bit of duck hunting as as far as being in middle school and high school. As far as that age goes, I'm getting more back into hunting now, and I have I have a dog. What for you? Do you do a lot of travel with your duck hunting? You hunt mostly local. What's that for you? Kind of look like? I would love to hunt more local. <laughs> Unfortunately, Jacksonville, Florida is not a waterfowler's destination. <laughs> <laughs> We have pretty limited opportunities around here. We have great clapper rail hunting in the marshes. So for cast and blast trips, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But for duck hunting, it's it's pretty tough. We got some wood ducks. Um, you can have a good day around here shooting teal. And we have some resident model ducks. But it's not, you know, you're not going to burn the barrels out in Jacksonville shooting ducks. What so. about pintail? I've never shot a pintail in Jacksonville. <laughs> I've been duck hunting here for a decade. <laughs> I've seen a few. Yeah. Gr- well, gr- the reason I ask is because when I was I- in it in high school, there was always talk about East Coast pintail. Yeah. And so, we never came over. We never got past Live Oak when I was in high school as far as hunting Florida. So when you were in high school, Merritt Island was one of the best places on the East Coast to hunt pintails. Still fantastic. Still a lot of pintails there. Not near what it used to be. Okay. Um, but we we do have some great waterfowl hunting along the east coast of Florida. It's just mostly a little bit farther south. So you um, travel mostly? Travel a lot. Um, how, how like how does that factor in? Do you just take a couple weeks off every year just for yourself, hit the road? I don't fish much at all in January mm-hmm. and very little in late December. So I usually take January off and just duck hunt. Um, last year did Tennessee, Texas, and a couple trips to the west coast of Florida. How do you set those up? Is it are you hunting with friends, outfitters, public land? We we DIY it. Um, I've got an 18 foot gator tail and a topper on the back of my truck with a mattress under it, <laughs> and some <laughs> some equally addicted. Now, when you say we, <laughs> I've got a couple guys that I hunt with. Um, 
Captain Chris Herrera out of Palm Coast. Yep, I've met I've met Chris and interviewed he, Chris. He's a yeah. great guy. We're both absolutely waterfowl addicts. Um, we actually met at 3 a.m. in a wall, uh, in a McDonald's parking lot because one of us had a I don't remember who had the permit, but one of us had a permit, and a mutual friend was like, "Hey, this guy's equally as good as you at duck hunting. You should hunt with him." <laughs> we both had the day off. It was like a Wednesday during the week. You know, one of those days where it pays to be a fishing guide with a slow schedule. Yeah. <laughs> And we hit it off, and since then, I think two weeks later, we were in a truck heading to Tennessee together to go hunt Tennessee. Hmm. And uh, So last year, we, we hunted Tennessee a few times, spent two weeks hunting in Texas from central Texas all the way through the southern Gulf Coast to Matagorda. Uh, this year, probably going to go back to Texas and hunt Arkansas, I think. And Drew, who's here tonight too, he lives in Arkansas. Not a duck hunter, but uh, a new <laughs> we, contact. We, we might have you. to make him one. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see it. Yeah. And I know you talked about the clapper rails. You know, um, not only uh, you know do you have a prosthetic leg, but right now you have a torn, twisted, pulled something with your knee. Yeah, the IT band which connects from your hip down to the outside of your tibia. I was hunting clapper rails on earlier this week and just hardcore stuff, man. Yeah, I was made the mistake of looking at the wrong clapper rail, <laughs> twisted my head, and my knee buckled. Uh, <laughs> so it's always something. What? So what did you do to it though? The, the IT band, like I know a lot of people have to stretch the IT band, lower back pain with that. But uh, did you strain it? Did you? Did so you? So the insertion into the tibia tore. Golly, all completely? Not completely. Um, they didn't do an MRI, but you could tell it wasn't complete just based on the physical examination. Yeah. I would imagine I would roll up. Yeah. 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 And so the physical therapist was able to isolate based on like pushing and stretching in a certain way and narrow it down to that's what it was. And based on where the swelling was, they're 95% sure that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. When I was in high school, I played defensive end and uh, we had a good football team and I was, I was playing and I thought a linebacker had come up and hit his helmet into the back of my arm. And so I turn around like pissed off. And there's no one there. And I was like, move my arm. I was like, what in the, you know, I had no clue what it was. I had long sleeves on. We were getting ready for uh, like a winter game. We were heading into state championship actually. And um, so it was cold. I had the long sleeves mm-hmm. on and I was like, man, my arm's hurting, my arm's hurting. And I go over to the defense coordinator. I'm like, dude, my, my arm's killing me, man. I don't know what I just did to it, but he's like, go ahead and take your pads off, take your shirt off. We'll get the, the trainer to look at it. Well, my arm swole so fast that they had to cut my long sleeve Under Armour shirt off. Couldn't get it off. It was that in the inside of my arm had just turned purple. I mean, just straight purple on the inside. It was a partial tricep tear. Ouch. And, uh, and really the pain after wasn't that bad. Like the initial pain was pretty bad. But I remember they would bring me into physical therapy once a day and I would hold um, this piece of metal and this other person would hold the other piece of metal. They did some sort of electro mm-hmm. therapy pushing the swelling out of my arm. And that was a wild experience to go through because they said, if I would have torn the tricep, it would have just rolled right up. Wow. Like a whole different, whole yeah. different ball game. I think they used surgery to attach it and 
Uh, you got lucky there. That, that would have yeah. been. I hope you killed that hen. I did not. I didn't even shoot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> didn't even pull the trigger. That yeah. hen. Was, the thing with the hens too yeah. is they laugh at you. You know, oh, yeah, they laugh the whole way. Yeah, yeah. they just laugh. Yeah. Look at this guy. <laughs> Look at this guy thinking he come out here. This is hardcore, man. Yeah, if you count the charters that, that hen cost me, that's probably a six thousand dollar march hen. That's, yeah, that's just the last week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> He's. No, they don't taste that good. No, they're not that. I mean, they're all right, but they're not that good. They're not six thousand yeah. dollars an yeah. ounce, <laughs> half an ounce per hen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, w- when you think back to you know when you first began guiding before you went through the experience of losing your leg, you know you're you're coming back from Denver. You're saying, you know what, living in this place that's so frigid, and scanning documents onto a copier is not for me. This isn't, Indiana Jones would be proud of this situation. <laughs> no, no. And you come not. back here, you start guiding. What advice would you give yourself? Honestly, if I could go back, I, I would have said do it sooner. I mean, I remember the first time I thought I might want to be a guide. I was, uh, it was my 16th birthday. The whole family went to the Keys. We were out with Booyah Charters. We were mutton fishing, and it was wide open. And the guy running the boat was probably 25 26 running like a 32 foot yellow fin gorgeous weather gorgeous water kids having a great time like that's his job like Mm -hmm. i I realized that day like he's this is what he does every day you know he could do it you could probably do it (laughs) but needless to say my parents who are great did not think that they're you know on a roll smart kid should should go be a fishing guy they're like that's 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 not why we worked hard so you go to college you know yeah. like, <laughs> so i'd say do it sooner if you yeah. if you're passionate about fishing you know you want to do it just do it jump in start getting your hours you know walk the docks find a mate job mm-hmm. take the leap and, and my last question is for you when you think look towards the future because you got a lot of years ahead of you lord willing what do you feel like success looks like? What's the goal there? Big picture. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, you know, professionally, I would love to get to more where I'm taking serious anglers all the time. Mm-hmm. Where it's, you're not worried about having to put, you know, Johnny and his friend on their bachelor party on bull reds or croakers because they just want to catch fish and drink beers all day. Mm-hmm. I want the guy that wants to go trophy hunting, you know, the guy that wants to catch a tarpon, the guy that wants to sight fish a redfish, the guy that wants to catch Kobe on fly that's willing to put in the time that it takes to do that. You know, that's professionally what I want to work for and mm-hmm. what I've tried to been, you know, building for, finding those clients, making those clients happy. Uh, I really appreciate the time tonight, man. I hope I want to do two things. I want to at some point come over and do Cobia with you. I would love that. You got me amped on it. Yeah, I would absolutely love that. And I want to do a waterfowl with you and Chris. We, we can absolutely. I got a chance to happen. hang with Chris. I love yeah. them, man. Yeah, we had some barbecue tonight. I was I was wishing it was Chris's barbecue, man. It's it, it great barbecue. <laughs> um, but man, thank you so much for the time, dude. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to hanging out soon. Absolutely, love to get you out there for some Cobia and. We can go chase ducks wherever you want. <laughs> we'll go go visit Arkansas. <laughs> or we'll go find that marsh hen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know that what one. Fla- I know you what flat I- it's on. <laughs> yeah. It's still in the same mangrove. Its whole family might get a visit next flood season. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. 
Thanks for listening to Captain's Collective. We hope that you enjoyed our conversation together. Help us out by leaving a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please continue to share with friends and family. Thanks for listening. This is the Captain's Collective.